invite you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. Follow along uh, with me as I read for us from John 1, uh, beginning in verse 35. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and follow Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I told you I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. May God bless the reading of his word. In uh, John chapter 1, verse 14, the Apostle John writes, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We can deduce from this that John has written his gospel account in such a way that we might join him in seeing the glory of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As we make our way through this gospel, we will indeed join John in seeing the glory of Jesus Christ. And such is the case this, for, for our text this morning where we're going to see, see several things. 
that show, that, that magnified the glory of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> the first thing we see in our text is that Jesus is the goal. Jesus is the goal. Look there again at, at verses 35 to 37. Uh, the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Well, this, the two disciples, they heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Uh, these disciples, they are initially disciples of John the Baptist. They had likely spent a considerable amount of time with John, but in a moment, they're gone. At the mention of Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God, the disciples of John go from following John to following Jesus. They, they would have been familiar with the many references in the Old Testament to a lamb being sacrificed in the place of sinners. We, we looked at some of those references last week. But here, John is pointing them to Jesus Christ as the Lamb of of God who would die in our place as the once for all sacrifice for sin. Well, at this, they, they follow Jesus. Now, whether or not they fully understand what John is, is implying here is unclear. But what is clear is that they trust the witness of John and they respond in obedience. We see them trust and obey which is all John could have really hoped for for them. Now, this certainly would have been a humbling experience for John. You know, we, we live in a world, don't we, where that, that views success by numbers. You know, the, the more people you have in attendance, the more successful your program is, that kind of thing. Well, that's not the mentality of John the Baptist. Now his, his followers are, are leaving him for, for, for someone else. His ministry is beginning to vanish. According to the world, John the Baptist is a failure, but not according to God. Now, if you, if you turn over to John chapter 3, it's just a couple pages, maybe even one page if you just have, if you, depending on the kind of Bible you have. In John chapter 3, this sums up the ministry of John the Baptist. In, in John 3, verses 28 to 30, John the Baptist says, uh, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have sent him, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Okay, so we, we can deduce from this that the reason for John the Baptist's existence is to point the way to Jesus. The goal of his ministry was to see Jesus increase. As one commentator put it, uh, the ministry of John the Baptist finds its fulfillment in the ministry of Jesus. 
Right, to, to a certain extent, John the Baptist is kind of like Simeon in, in Luke 2, who can say, you know, I, I can now depart, for I have seen this glory of Jesus. And, and if, if John's followers are, are leaving him for Jesus, that's worth celebrating, because it means that Jesus is getting the glory, not him. Now, of course, this is a difficult lesson for us. Because by nature, we're, we're glory seekers. We, we want glory for ourselves because of sin. But, but the goal of our witness is, is not for ourselves. It's not for our personal agenda. It's for Jesus. Right? Jesus is the goal. If all we're doing is building up our ministry, if all we're doing is making much of ourselves, then, then we have missed the point of what it means to witness. The goal of our witness is that Jesus would be glorified, that Jesus would increase, that Jesus would become the point. One pastor shared this story. Uh, he, he said uh, he conducted a Thursday evening visitation program after which uh, those who went out sharing the gospel would come back and they would describe their experiences. And on one particular occasion, he asked the group, what did you pray for as you left the building and started knocking on doors? And one young man re responded in refreshing candor. He said, I prayed that nobody would be home. <laughs> But how often do we feel that way? Right? It, can be, it can be difficult to witness about Jesus Christ. We, we don't want to be in a position. We don't want to be in a position on people who, who don't want to hear what we have to say. But like John the Baptist, we, we need to point people to Jesus. Right? He's the Lamb of God who came to save us from our sins. That's what attracted the disciples of John to Jesus. And it's what continues to attract people to Jesus today. The goal of our witness is Jesus. That's the, that's the first thing we see in our text. The second thing we see in our text is that Jesus is the initiator. Jesus is the initiator. Look at verses 38 to 39. Uh, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. That is about 4 p.m. Now, Throughout John's gospel, we're going to see people talking about something at a physical level, and, and, and Jesus is going to take their language, and he's going to lead them into a deeper spiritual level. So a few examples of, of, of this quickly. Uh, in John 3, Nicodemus is going to talk about physical birth, and Jesus is going to talk about spiritual birth. In John 4, the, the Samaritan woman at the well is, is, is going to talk about physical water, and Jesus is going to talk about spiritual water. 
In John chapter 6, the crowds are talking about physical bread, and Jesus is going to talk about spiritual bread. In, in John chapter 9, the Pharisees deal with a man who has been given physical sight, while Jesus is going to talk to them about spiritual sight. And so this, this kind of, they're talking about something physical, he's talking about something spiritual, we see that playing out throughout the Gospel of John, and the same is true here. Well, when it says that Jesus turned and saw them, it means more than simply physically turning toward them. Um, in, in Psalm 90, verse 13, the psalmist says, Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Uh, Zechariah 1, verse 3 says, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. And, and you see a number of these examples of turning or returning in, uh, in the Psalms, in, in the prophets. For years, the, the people of God had cried out to the Lord, turn to us, you know, sh- uh, shine your face upon us, restore us to you. This kind of turn toward us language. So when Jesus turns towards these disciples, it it was more than a a physical turning toward them. It was a spiritual turning toward them. It was an answer to the long-standing prayers of the people of God. Here, in the person of Jesus Christ, God had turned toward his people. The gospel offers a return to God. Now we might ask, a return from what? Well, I think Ephesians 2, verses 12 to 13 is clear. We're actually going to be looking at this at at, uh, Bible study on Wednesday evening. Ephesians 2, verses 12 to 13, it says that that we were at one time uh, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And that's us by nature, apart from Christ. But now, it, it goes on to say, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So that's that's the return that, that we're talking about here. You know, we were once far off, we've been brought near. You know, God at one time had his face turned away from us, and now he's turned his face toward us. Now, now the question is, how did this happen? And it happened because God in the person of Jesus Christ turned toward us. He took the initiative. And we need to be very clear here. We did not turn to God first. Now, God has always been and always will be the initiator. As much as the Christian is a person who is seeking after God, it has always been God who first sought us. John Calvin writes, uh, when we are not thinking of Christ, we are, we are observed by him. 
and it is necessary that it should be so, that he may bring us back when we have wandered from him. You see, we are naturally blind to our own sin, blind to our own self-righteousness. We are blind without God. We need God to give us spiritual sight so that we might see him for who he is. Which is exactly what we see happen in these verses. You know, when Jesus asks the disciples of John, what, what are you seeking? He's not asking them if they want to see where he's staying. But that's immediately where they go, right? They, they, they ask Jesus, where are you staying? And it, and it simply shows that left to ourselves, we'll follow Jesus for all the wrong reasons. But thankfully, Jesus is patient toward them. And thankfully, Jesus is patient towards us. Jesus says to them, come and you will see. Now, the disciples might take that to mean physical sight, right? Come and you will see where I am staying. And to a certain extent, that's right. But again, what Jesus is doing is he's leading them into a deeper spiritual reality, right? If they will come to Jesus, they will have spiritual sight. They'll be able to see. Come and you will see who I am, who you are. And how desperately you need me. That's the sight that they'll actually receive. And this is made clear in the following verses. Look at verses 40 to 41. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Now, now here, you know, we're, we're introduced to Messiah, Christ. What, what exactly does that mean? What does that entail? Well, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, you don't have to turn here, but you can if you want to. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 to 14, the Lord says to King David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, at one level, this is a reference to David's son, Solomon. But this is also a reference to a future descendant of David, a a greater son of David, whose reign would have no end and who would be known as the Son of God. And so this is what Andrew is saying when when he says, we have found the Messiah. He's saying, we have found the one who will establish his, his kingdom, the kingdom of God on the earth, and who will defeat the enemies of God's people once and for all. We've found him. Now, to an extent, Andrew is right about his assessment of Jesus as the Messiah. But he, he still doesn't have it quite right. You know, this, this king of Israel, this son of God, would eventually be crucified by the Romans as a criminal rather than conquering the Romans. That's not exactly the Messiah that they pictured. And yet, as the Messiah, Jesus would defeat their greater enemies of sin and death and hell and the devil, right? But we see here that, that Andrew's on the right track. Now again, 
How does that happen? Andrew was only seeking where, where Jesus was staying. How did he suddenly come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah? Ah, from spending time with Jesus. See, after spending time with Jesus, Andrew has come to see that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. As the initiator, Jesus has, has opened up Andrew's eyes to see him for who he is. Andrew might not have the full picture yet, necessarily, but he's getting there. And the seeing, it compels him to go and get his brother. And so all of a sudden, this, this come and see turns into a, a go and tell. Which we also see throughout the Gospel of John. In fact, uh, every time that Andrew is mentioned in John's gospel, he's bringing someone to Jesus. <laughs> in John chapter 6, Andrew brings the boy with the five loaves and two fish to Jesus. And in John chapter 12, Andrew brings some Greeks who wanted to see Jesus to Jesus, right? If, if only we were more, more like Andrew. He's always bringing people to Jesus. But here, here, Andrew doesn't, he doesn't try to convince his brother that Jesus is the Messiah. What does he do? He simply brings him to Jesus. He, Come and you will see. It worked for him. He's just anticipating that it's going to work for his, his brother. And, and, and this brings us to the third thing that we see in our text. So, so Jesus is the goal. Jesus is the initiator. Thirdly, Jesus is authoritative. Jesus is authoritative. Look at verse 42. Andrew brought Simon to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Now, there's no explanation in John's gospel as to why Jesus changed Simon's name to Cephas, that is, Peter. Now, in, in Matthew chapter 16, Verses 17 to 19, we get this, this extended dialogue where Jesus says, Blessed are you, uh, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. But here, that's not the point. Right? In John's gospel, the point here is that Jesus has the authority to give you whatever name he pleases. <laughs> right? Jesus doesn't ask Simon, hey, do you, do you want your name changed? Because I can do that if you want. No. Jesus simply changes Simon's name because Jesus has absolute authority to change our identity. Right? This is more than just a name change. It's an identity change. You were once here, you're now here because of me. Right? We, we saw this in, in Genesis 32, verse 28, right? Where God changed Jacob's name to Israel. Right? You were once deceiver, now you're Israel. Right? And we see this in, in uh, Revelation 2, verse 17 as well, where, where Jesus says to the one who conquers, 
I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. That's us. We receive a new name, a new identity in Christ. What one pastor said, uh, there is no identity for your life better than the one Jesus gives you. And isn't that the truth? So, so Jesus is authoritative to be able to, to change our identity. And, and also because Jesus is authoritative, uh, he can rightly command our allegiance. Look at verse 43. The, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip, and he said to him, follow me. That's earlier, John the Baptist. He was encouraging his disciples to, to go and follow Jesus. But now Jesus, we, we're seeing his authority in commanding allegiance to himself. Uh, later in, in John chapter 15, verse 16, uh, Jesus will say, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. How? Because he's authoritative. Because Jesus has absolute authority and can do that. He can command our allegiance. Now, this doesn't mean that, that we don't have to choose Jesus. We still have to choose Jesus. But what Jesus is saying here is that when we choose to follow Jesus, when we receive Jesus Christ as our lamb, as our bread, as our water, as our king, as our shepherd, then we can know. That Jesus chose us first. That he has absolute authority to do so. And you even look at who Jesus is choosing. Here's Philip, right? We, We know some of the trades of some of the disciples, but we know very little about Philip. Which simply shows that Jesus used, or he had use, for for perfectly ordinary people like Philip. And, And thank goodness that Jesus still has use today for perfectly ordinary people. That gives me hope. So we see Jesus is the goal, Jesus is the initiator, Jesus is authoritative. Lastly, Jesus is all-knowing. And and this really is mind-blowing. Look at verses 45 to 48. Philip found Nathanael. He said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, this is great, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And I love Philip's response. He simply says to him, come and see. You don't believe me? That's fine. Come and see. Beautiful. I love it. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no Deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? And Jesus answered him, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. So, So we see, just like Andrew, Philip has a burning desire after spending time with Jesus to share the good news about Jesus. And he soon finds Nathanael, but of course Nathanael is skeptical. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He cannot conceive of of the one coming from such an insignificant place like Nazareth. And yet, what does he do? He still goes with Philip to see Jesus. See, there's enough curiosity there. 
It's like, I don't necessarily know if anything good can come out of Nazareth, but just to make sure, let's, let's go and check it out. And, and he hears two things from Jesus that absolutely floor him. First, Jesus says that Nathaniel is an Israelite indeed. Or some other translations say, uh, a true Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Now, by true Israelite, again, Jesus isn't speaking physically here. He's, he's talking about deeper spiritual realities. He's not saying that, that Nathaniel is the perfect example of an Israelite, of a, of a, of a Jew externally. No, he's speaking internally of Nathaniel. See, Nathaniel, he, he is one who, in whom there is no deceit, right? He's open before God with his sin and, and he, he, he accepts forgiveness from God. He is open and honest before the Lord. And, and such ought to be the case for us. Uh, Galatians chapter 6, verse 16 says, as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. You see, all who trust in Christ by faith are technically true Israelites. In the new heaven and the new earth, surrounding the the throne of God, surrounding the, the Lamb of God will be True Israelites from every tribe and language and, and people and nation declaring salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is the posture that Jesus saw in Nathaniel, and it's the posture that Jesus ought to see in all true Christians. Like Nathaniel, God seeks not perfect obedience or even perfect understanding. They don't necessarily have it right. But what he sees is the perfection of Jesus offered to all who come and see. Cannot be said of us. Now the question is, how how could Jesus know all of this about Nathaniel? It's because Jesus is all-knowing. Right? He knows the heart of mankind. Now that is both a, a, a terrifying thought and an encouraging thought. Right? It's, it's terrifying because consider what Nathaniel has just said concerning Nazareth. Right? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, Jesus knows that about Nathaniel. He knows his, his position on Nazareth, and yet he doesn't turn away Nathaniel. Right? He, he doesn't say, what, you don't like my hometown? Fine, I don't like you. No! Jesus sees Nathaniel and says, here's a man who says it like it is, who isn't two-faced, who isn't deceitful. It's terrifying that Jesus knows our situation, that he, he knows our heart, that he knows every detail about us. But, but here's why it's so encouraging. Jesus continues to love us. Right, this should blow our minds. He doesn't turn us away. He continues to draw near to us. How wonderful is it that whatever our hurt, whatever our sorrow, 
Whatever our posture toward him, even if we're antagonistic toward Jesus, Jesus knows all about it and he continues to invite us to follow him. I think that's wild. Now, as Nathaniel is wrestling, wrestling through, how could Jesus know all of this about me? Jesus says another thing that's, that's just as mind-boggling. He says, to him, I, he says to Nathaniel that he saw him under the fig tree. Now, there, there are a number of interpretations as to, to what is meant by the fig tree. Was it a, a literal fig tree? Was this, was this a reference to his home? Uh, was, there, there are a number of interpretations. What, what the point is, is that Nathaniel had some sort of religious experience that only Jesus knew about. That's the point. Now, in that moment, Jesus took away Nathaniel's spiritual blindness, right? Suddenly, Nathaniel could see Jesus. Nathaniel had, had witnessed that Jesus was all-knowing, and, and that was enough for him, right? This wasn't simply an ordinary man from Nazareth. No, in verse 49, Nathaniel says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Well, there's an about face. Maybe something good can come from Nazareth after all. Now, like Andrew, Nathaniel applies these messianic titles to Jesus. Son of God, King of Israel. But, but like Andrew, it's, it's quite likely that Nathaniel saw more of a political and military king than, than a, a king who would die for his subjects. You know, he, he could see to some extent, but it, it, was, it was like looking in a mirror dimly. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 12 talks about. What, what he could not see was the actual nature of Jesus' kingdom, which is not of this world. John 18 verse 36. You know, we, we've seen this phrase, come and see, uh, a couple of times. And the irony is that these disciples have indeed come, but they haven't quite seen. Or they say they haven't seen clearly. And, and I think the point here is that to, to come and see doesn't mean that we've arrived. You know, it's, it's not a completed task on our checklist. You know, I've, I've come and see, and that's good enough for me. I can go through all my life and I came and saw at one point in time. No, no, it's just the beginning for the believer in Christ. The, the Christian life is a constant striving after Christ where we are daily coming to Christ and we're daily seeing him in all his glory. And that's what we've been looking at this morning, right? Glory as of the only son from the father. Are we coming to see Jesus for what he can do for us? Or are we coming to see Jesus in all his glory? That'll reveal you know, whether we're more like the disciples or whether we're more, more in line with what Jesus is after. 
Well, knowing this confusion from them, Jesus says in verses 50 to 51, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? Oh, you're going to see greater things than these. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, this, this statement from Jesus, it recalls the, uh, the experience of, uh, of Jacob in, in Genesis chapter 28. If, if you recall from our study in Genesis, uh, when Jacob was fleeing from his brother Esau, whose blessing and birthright he had uh, taken by deceit, Jacob had stopped at a certain place where he slept, and, and he dreamed of angels ascending and descending upon a ladder that joined heaven and earth. While above the ladder stood the Lord who made specific promises to Jacob about the land, about his descendants, and about the blessing that would come to the world through them. And, and a little bit about Jacob's return to the land that he was fleeing. And Genesis chapter 28, verses 16 to 17 says, Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So, so this is what Jesus is referring to in verse 51. When he says, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending. Except that Jesus makes no mention of a ladder. Right? The angels aren't, aren't ascending and descending on a ladder. What does Jesus say? He says that the angels of God are ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now again, this is another messianic title for Jesus, just like Son of God and just like King of Israel. Son of Man is actually Jesus' favorite designation for himself. It's used by Jesus nearly 80 times in the Gospels. And it comes from Daniel chapter 7. Again, you don't have to turn there, although you can if you want. In Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14, Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So, so this, this language of kingship, glory, sovereignty, right? Jesus is not merely man. No, Jesus is God. And what is Jesus saying here in John? He's saying that he is the latter. He's the only one who could be because he's the God man. And he is the latter. He is heaven open. He is the house of God. You see, the, the dwelling place of God is a person, not a place. The place where, where people encounter God now is in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. Right? Nathaniel hasn't seen anything yet. It's just going to get 
better from here. The, the, uh, the story is told of a Scottish missionary couple who found themselves surrounded by cannibals intent on taking their lives. On that terror-filled night, the couple fell to their knees and they prayed that God would protect them. It was a horrible time. The missionaries heard the cries of the savages and imagined them coming through the door to take their lives. Well, as the sun began to rise, to their astonishment, they found that the natives were retreating into the forest. The missionaries were absolutely amazed and filled with joy. The couple bravely continued their work. A year later, the chieftain of that tribe was saved. As the missionary spoke with him, he remembered the horror of that night and asked the chieftain why he and his men had not killed them. The chieftain replied in surprise, who are all those men who were with you? The missionary answered, there were no men with us. It was just my wife and myself. The chieftain began to argue with him, saying, No, there were hundreds of tall men in shining garments with drawn swords circling about your house so that we couldn't attack you. You will see greater things than these. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The missionary was John G. Patton of the New Hebrides. Many of us today likely have miraculous stories that we could tell. But how aware are we of the quote-unquote day-to-day spiritual realities that surround us? And we, I don't know if this is a North America thing or if this is just a, you know, 21st century thing, but we so... We've so dumbed down the supernatural to the extent that we do not see God. You know, God is in this place and we do not know it. We go to school, we go to work, we go to church, we go to the coffee shop, we go to Wade's. And we do not know it. What a difference it would make in our lives if we had spiritual eyes to see the glory of Jesus Christ all around us. If we had spiritual eyes to see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. John 1 verse 14 again says, We have seen His glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This morning we've seen His glory in being the goal of our witness in being the initiator of our salvation, in being the one who changes our identity and commands our allegiance because he has absolute authority, in being the one who knows all things about us. Ultimately, we behold his glory in his death on the cross. In in John 3, verses 14 to 15, Jesus says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The greatest glory that Nathaniel or or that you or that I would ever see is the glory 
of the Son of God, the Son of Man, the King of Israel, lifted up on a cross to die for sinners. Right? We, we may not have been there, but we behold His glory with the eyes of faith, eyes that have been open to see Christ for who He really is, to see ourselves for who we really are, and to see how desperately we need Him. At least I hope that our eyes have been open to see such glorious realities. If you have not come to Jesus Christ and, and seen his glory, I encourage you to do so today. And come to the Lamb who died to save you from your sin. Come to the ladder who restores your broken relationship with God. Come to the Son of Man who is coming again to establish his kingdom on the earth in all its fullness. May we come and see, church. And, and then, like the disciples, may we go and tell of his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Uh, show us what we have not seen and transform us into what we have not yet become. Uh, may the Jesus we know, the Jesus we love, the Jesus who saved us by his grace, be the Jesus we share. Make us like Andrew, always bringing people to Jesus. And if there are any here who do not yet know you, speak clearly to them by your spirit, through your word, that they might come and see the glory of Jesus Christ. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It's in his name we pray. Amen.